0: Our final reading today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, beginning with the first verse. It picks up in the middle of a story, but we'll hear the rest of it soon enough. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment... But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here. He has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. He got up and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Earlier this week, a friend of mine told me a story A story that her friend had told her and that that friend's friend had shared with her friend. You know how these things go. In this particular story, the protagonist, since I don't know their name or even if it is a him or a her, we'll just call them that, the protagonist was attempting to make a dramatic point. And as they were speaking to a bunch of pastors, after a few attempts at apparently not achieving the significant response desired, they said, well, it was as profound a moment as when Paul was on the road to Damascus and he fell off his horse. My friend ended the story right there, and I waited to understand why she was telling this to me. She correctly interpreted my silence as confusion. Jenny, she said, there is no horse in that story. Which of course made me think about the image on the bulletin this morning, an image that comes straight from the Holy Land itself and I offered my own profound response to this. I said, huh. You see, in the past couple of weeks, as I was looking for the image for today, I discovered that most of the particularly well-known images of this moment, they show Paul, who is technically still Saul at this point, they show him falling off his horse. Which, as my friend pointed out to me, is one of those details we've internalized, but actually does not come from scripture. As he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, No horse. But what's fascinating to me about all of this is this story does not lack for drama all on its own, just the way we receive it, but somehow we have needed to make it bigger and even more dramatic than it is. This story of Saul's conversion, this moment of seeing the light and changing our ways. But I wonder I wonder if like most of us here in these pews, Saul's conversion was nowhere near as instantaneous as we tend to think about it. Rachel Held Evans, a tremendously influential Christian theologian and writer. She died this weekend after inexplicable complications from an allergic reaction. She was 37 years old Her voice quickly found traction among people of faith years ago, though, because she was raised in an extraordinarily fundamentalist tradition, yet in adulthood joined the Episcopal Church. She clung to the Jesus of her childhood while believing that that very Jesus would be one of inclusion and welcome. She became known as a progressive Christian who still believed in actual miracles, a voice for social justice still willing to bet her life on the resurrection. I am a Christian, she once said, because the story of Jesus is the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. And if you asked her about when she was saved, her favorite response had become, Well, just again this morning, as a matter of fact, she, perhaps as much as anyone, understood that conversion is not a one-time event. And I'd like to suggest that this morning's scripture lesson, despite its dramatics, is further evidence of that. We are told that Saul was going from town to town arresting his fellow Jews who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He was so zealous in this endeavor that the text itself says he was breathing threats and murder. The very air in his lungs was self-righteousness, and he had a drive to purge out everything that was impure of his beloved religion. What's more, he had the full support of the authorities in Jerusalem to hunt down followers of Jesus and take them to Jerusalem where they would stand trial. And more than likely, they would find the same fate as their brother Stephen, who just a few chapters ago was stoned to death for his faith. Now the people in Damascus, including Ananias, they are warned that Saul is coming And so I imagine they were completely terrified. And what I tend to want from Jesus when I am absolutely terrified is comfort and reassurance. I want the angels to come and whisper to me, do not be afraid. I want promises of safety and security. And I find it entirely frustrating that Jesus rarely acts the way we think he ought to. Because Jesus does not say, Ananias, Saul is coming, so go and protect your family and your loved ones. Avoid him at all costs. Do as I say, and I promise you, everything will be okay. He doesn't say anything close to that. He says, Ananias, Saul is coming. Here is exactly where you can go and find him. And not just find him. I need you to lay your hands on him and pray for him and restore his sight to him. As one of my friends says at this moment, We would understand completely if Ananias pulled a Jonah and ran in the opposite direction. But Ananias doesn't even try. He does exactly what the Lord asks of him. But it seems to me that he has a conversion as well. Not because it changes his faith in Jesus, but because it changes his understanding of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is about being saved in the afterlife, but it is equally as much about how it is we live in this life. Ananias' conversion is certainly the less dramatic account Ask most people about Paul's conversion and chances are, if they know even a little bit about the Bible, they can come up with something about the road to Damascus. They might even mention a horse. But ask most people about Ananias and you'll likely get a blank stare. You see, he only shows up in this particular moment but I suspect that his ongoing conversion allowed for Saul's ongoing conversion. Ananias' fear was converted to love, or at least to obedience, and when he found Saul just as the Lord said he would, he laid his hands on him, and he called him brother. And surely, that moment too was a conversion for Saul. So here is what I find to be particularly challenging about our faith. When it comes to salvation, our own salvation is utterly and always tied to the salvation of people we aren't particularly crazy about. We might even describe them as people we hate but Jesus wouldn't approve of that language. Ananias lays hands on the man who had been breathing threats and murder, and because Jesus said to, he called him brother. Now back on Easter, we talked about the transformation that can take place when we're called by name. Brother is a new name for Saul. Yes, he will receive another new name, Saul will become Paul, but this new name comes first, and it is a name that carries with it forgiveness and reconciliation, so powerful that the scales on his eyes could not help but fall off. And having been seen for who he truly is, he is ready to see others for who they truly are too. His old black-and-white violent ways of seeing quite literally fell away. His story is the dramatic one, where scales fall off of eyes. But if I had to choose, I would choose the faith of Ananias, who learns to see people through God's eyes. I would very much like that kind of vision. Although, I suppose, if I'm being completely honest, I would like the faith of Ananias 80% of the time. Because I do believe that God can raise the dead. And I do believe that God can convert my fear into love, too. And I do believe that God can give me the strength to make a brother out of my enemy. But sometimes, at least that remaining 20% of the time, I really want to keep thinking the way I already think. I want a transformative faith, but only if everyone else gets transformed too, because if all the people who challenge me, well, if they stay the same and I'm the one who's supposed to change, well, that is certainly a less attractive offer. But it seems to be exactly what Jesus is asking of us. Resurrection is the very best thing we know. But resurrection doesn't always feel good. On Easter Day, we hear about the reality of resurrection, and that is exactly as it ought to be. But throughout the season of Easter that follows, we hear a bit more about the process of Resurrection. And it's all good news. But not all of it feels good. Some of it smells like lilies and hydrangeas, but some of it smells like decayed earth and fallen scales. Krista Tippett is well known for her NPR broadcast on Being. Fairly recently, she wrote a book called Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. And she writes quite a bit about civility. The practice of civility is among our most urgent needs, she says, because we are living in an age where the question of what it means to be human has become inextricable from the question of who we are to each other. A barrier to civility and a barrier to Christian community is the unsustainable notion that what holds us together are the places and ideas around which we agree. But Tippett says civility as something courageous insists that there is value in learning to speak together honestly and to relate to each other with dignity without insisting on a goal of achieving common ground, if common ground would mean leaving the hard questions behind. Common ground is not the same thing as common life. If we insist that common ground be a prerequisite for common life, we diminish our range of possibility. 16 chapters later in the book of Acts, after Saul becomes Paul, he himself ends up arrested for his Christian activity. And when he is standing before King Agrippa, he recalls his conversion that started on the road to Damascus, and Paul himself asks, why is the thought that God can raise the dead so incredible and threatening to you? And I cannot help but ask myself, do I think it's so possible that God can raise the dead that I am willing to see that possibility even in the person who has hurt me? or even in the person I have written off completely? Can I believe it's so possible that God can raise the dead that I am willing to see it even in the most despicable parts of myself, the parts of myself that I've written off completely? Look at Saul. He was arrogant and forceful, violent and unwavering. And God looks at Saul and says, I could use someone like you. And God takes everything that makes people hate Saul and turns it into a faithful force for good, even if all those around him thought it was absolutely crazy. God insists that salvation can be found in even the strangest and least likely of places. And that salvation, it doesn't always feel good, but it is always, always good news. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.